Thanks so much to the worship team. Can we just affirm these guys? They were only asked a few days ago to help out, so they've just done an incredible job. Um, yeah, just leading us this morning in worship, and thank you for, for all you do, guys. Um, as Tane mentioned before, this is the fourth and final week of a series we've been doing called Unhurry. Say to the person next to you, Unhurry. Doesn't really roll off the tongue too well, does it? We didn't really think that through when we chose the title, hey, Mike, but it's, uh, it's, I think you get the idea, right? If hurry is like one thing, then unhurry should be kind of the opposite, right? Unhurry, we're trying to slow down our lives to get into calibrating it with the the lifestyle that Jesus lived. And the whole premise of this series is just that. It's that if if we want to live the life that Jesus has for us, we believe that there is something to be said for the lifestyle that he lived. Looking at things like um, the fact that he, he practiced a Sabbath, that he got into solitude and spent time in silence with the Father, that he had his priorities in order. He experienced contentment. He lived out contentment, as Murray shared beautifully last week. And today we're going to talk about a topic that you probably haven't heard, and it's probably another word that you don't use too often, but it's slowing. That's our topic for today. It's slowing. But before we get into that, has anyone heard of Stephen Bradbury? Yeah? An absolute Australian icon. What was Stephen Bradbury known for? What, What did he do? Ice skating, but what, what else did he, did he win anything? He stood up. Hey, he stood up when the time counted. He won a gold medal. He won Australia's first ever gold medal at the Winter Olympics, Salt Lake City. 2000? Was it 2000? Yeah, we'll say 2000. Why not? Anyways, if you don't know the story, Stephen Bradbury, um, he's from Australia, obviously, because he was representing Australia. Um, and if you know much about Australia, which I'm hoping you do because you're here today, there's not a whole lot of snow, not a whole lot of ice around. Um, so the Winter Olympics aren't exactly our forte as a nation. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, fair to say. Um, but Steve Bradbury was one of the best speed skaters in Australia. And his signature event was the 1,000-meter sprint. And he got to the Olympics, and to be honest, not many people were expecting him to do super well because from Australia, not a whole lot of ice, not a lot of snow to, to really train on. And Anyway, he gets to, to the Olympics and he has this tactic, right? I'm going to call it a tactic because I don't like the thought of it just being him being like slower than everyone else. But his tactic was, because, because he knew that like in Salt Lake, like the, the ice was pretty slippery, a lot of people were probably going to fall over. And so he would actually sit back on the pack and that's basically the way that he made it to the final was because he would sit back on the pack and then people would often fall over during the race and he'd sneak through to, to get through to the next round, right? So that was his tactic. Genius. Anyways, he gets to the final and uh, we're, we're going to watch the, the end of that final now. It's a pretty long race, so I cut it down. Um, but, but kids, if you haven't seen this race before, this is a key part of our history as a nation. So um, make sure you really focus um, because you're going to see, and if you're trying to work out which one he is, he's the one like right at the back of the race because he's doing his tactic of sitting back and just, just watching out. But this is how the race ended up going. Let's hope this works. So there he is right at the back there. You wait for it. Oh! Yes! And so it was Australia's first gold medal at the Winter Olympics. An absolute Australian icon. Look at that face. That's the face of a champion. I, I, I see more shock on his face than actual like, yes, I've won this. Um, but either way, hey, he was on top of the podium. And uh, from that point, you know, Australia has progressively gotten better at the Winter Olympics. But um, there's something really cool about like a narrow escape or like a, a last minute victory. And I don't know if that's just us as a nation that love that more than more than most. Um, 
But unfortunately, it's not the, the reality that we live in this world where, I mean, we might live busy lives, but I don't know about you, but I don't constantly feel like I'm just winning or just getting ahead. I always feel like I'm just behind and trying to keep up and, and trying, to, trying to just get to the next thing. And I have a thought for you today, and I wonder if you can consider this thought as we start, but is it possible that we find what it truly means to be human, not in the exciting, really high points of life, but in the more mundane, regular rhythms of life? That's the question I want to pose to you this morning, and here's my big idea, is that by slowing down our lives, right, by, by, by following the kind of lifestyle that Jesus lived, by slowing down our lives, we make room for what truly matters. Okay, so that's my big idea for today. So if you forget everything else other than Stephen Bradbury's gold medal, remember this, okay, that by slowing down our lives, we make room for what truly matters. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and that we can come together and read it today, that we can dive into it, Father. I ask now that you just rid me of myself, that you speak through me, that in that you give every single one of us receptive hearts to what you are doing in this space, Father. We praise you and acknowledge you as our God now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to tell you a story of two people. Um, the first of these people is, um, he's actually a religious leader, right? He's, he's one of the, the head honchos in his local church. Um, top dude, right? Really top guy. Does all the right things, helps the poor, feeds the, feeds the hungry, has people over for lunch every week, you know, nice guy. Uh, he's married, he has a daughter as well. His daughter's about 12 years old and um, yeah, she's awesome. She's like just about to go into high school, you know, just graduated primary school and um, yeah, she, she's growing up and, and she's, you know, just, just beautiful. She's intelligent, she's wise, you know, she's really polite and, and, and a kind young girl. Um, and, and this is this first man, right? He's got, he's living a pretty good life. And then there's this other person, this second person, and she's kind of living in a, a different space. She's actually had an illness for, for 12 years as well. And um, this, this illness has, has weakened her. It's uh, affected her financially because she's tried to get uh, some, some treatment for it. And she's gone to every doctor, every practitioner imaginable, spent all of her life savings on it. Um, if, she, if she ever was married, she wasn't now because during this time it was actually um, looked down upon for you to be married to someone with a condition of, of bleeding because she was living in a state of uncleanness. She was always un, like ritually unclean. And if you were unclean, you couldn't actually participate in religious uh, services. You couldn't participate in festivals. And so what that meant is she was actually an outcast. She was not only facing an uphill battle like physically, but socially. She wasn't actually accepted or included anywhere. And these two different people are people we come across in the book of Luke chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open up there. And we're going to look at this story because we're going to see in the way Jesus acts something very important that we can apply to our own lives. So Luke chapter 8, would you open there with me now? Uh, I've got the Sky Bible up here behind, so if you don't have one, that's all good. We're going to start here in verse 41. It says this, Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, this is this leader I was talking about, this man, he came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying, and Jesus went with him. He was surrounded by the crowds. So this is kind of the intro to the story. We see this religious leader completely humiliate himself by falling at the feet of Jesus. And he says, God, like, my, my only daughter, she's sick, she's dying. Can you come help? And Jesus says, yes, I'll go. Now, I want you to kind of put yourself in the position of Jesus here. Not that we can ever be like Jesus, but just think, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I need help, 
my child is dying. You are the person that can help. There's going to be a bit of urgency in that, right? You're going to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to hurry up and get there. But we see here that Jesus was surrounded by the crowds. Now, I don't think that's because he had an inability to move quickly. But we see Jesus moving at a pace that everyone can come along with. And in that crowd, I believe there were men, there were women, there were the old, there were the young. And this conglomerate of people that were so attracted to the character of Jesus were able to take this journey with him. And we, and we keep reading verse 43. There was a woman in the crowd, right? Remember that woman I mentioned before? There was a woman in the crowd who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe and immediately the bleeding stopped. This woman who for 12 years had spent her life savings trying to get healing. This woman who was undoubtedly weakened by her illness that she'd had for so long was able to reach out and touch Jesus. That tells me that Jesus is going at a pace that even the downtrodden, even the hurting, even the sick could keep up with. That even though he saw a need and was going to fulfill it, he wasn't so focused on getting that done that he didn't leave room for what could happen on the way there. And this woman, many scholars say she was able to touch the, the corner of one of the tassels on his, on his uh, robe that he was wearing. And, she, and she's healed. She's finally healed. Twelve years of suffering, of being an outcast, of being separate from society. And she experiences healing. And so Jesus asks, who touched me? And remember, he's walking amongst a crowd here of people. And he says, who touched me? Everyone denied it. And Peter said, and I imagine he's being a bit sarcastic here. Peter says, master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. What do you mean? What do you mean who touched you? The, the, the word here in the Greek like literally means that the crowd is crushing Jesus. So to give you like a visual picture, rather than Jesus walking in the crowd surrounding him, it's probably more like the crowd are moving and Jesus is kind of just getting pulled along with the crowd. At, like, have you ever gone to like a big sporting event or something and you're just in a crowd of like, well, I can't run. I just, I just got to go at the, spa- at the pace of the crowd. That's kind of what's going on here. But Jesus says, no, no, some, someone deliberately touched me. I don't, want, I don't want you to miss that word deliberately because what, what that tells us is that even though Jesus was surrounded by people, he was surrounded by a crowd that were touching him, there's a difference between touching him and reaching out in faith to Jesus. And that's, in, that's important for us to grasp because you can be doing the religious things. You can be kind of ticking the religious boxes or coming to church, but that's not the same thing as actually reaching out for Jesus. And, and I just want to challenge you with that today because there's, there's a difference between uh, being close to Jesus and, and reaching out to Jesus as we see in this story. Jesus says, For I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized she could not stay here and she began to tremble and fell to her knees before him. What we kind of miss in this story as well is that when like, a, a, a woman uh, was bleeding, um, when she stopped, she would actually still be unclean for a whole week afterwards. It was like a cleansing period in, in, in Jewish tradition. And so basically, she's probably thinking, well, Jesus is going to humiliate me here because even though I was healed, I'm still unclean. I'm still dirty. I've, I've just infected this rabbi with my own uncleanness. But we read on. 
The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she'd been immediately healed. Daughter, he said, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. A lot of translations will say like your faith has healed you. Um, the word there is called so-so, so-zo, uh, and it actually means saved as well. Your faith has healed you, your faith has saved you. And this is completely revolutionary because what the reader would have expected is that when this woman touched Jesus, she would have made him unclean. But in fact, Jesus is making a claim here to say, no, your, your, your brokenness, your sin, your pain, your hurting doesn't make me unclean. No, when you come in contact with me, I make you clean. And that's the gospel right there. I don't know if there's someone here today that's believed for the longest time that they're too sinful, that they're too broken, that they're too hurting, that they're too far gone for Jesus to save. But I can tell you with complete confidence that nothing you have done or ever will do could intimidate Jesus. What he did on the cross was he made a claim that said, I am paying the price for all humanity's sin for all time. And that means that no matter how far gone you feel you might be, you're never too far gone for Jesus. So come to him. Come to him and say, God, I I need forgiveness. I put my faith in you. You are my Lord. He will welcome you with open arms. That is the gospel right there. Your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. And while he was still speaking, right? So while this conversation is happening, remember there's still Jairus in the background, right? This religious leader who's urgently waiting for Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. A messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use traveling the teacher now. Now just imagine Jairus' heart just breaking in that moment. Just being like, it's too late. God was too slow to help me. But remember what we just discovered, right? That no obstacle intimidates Jesus. Nothing is too big for Jesus. But I think it's important to acknowledge this here because when we're the ones suffering, when we're the ones in pain, when we're the ones hurting, it often seems like God is being really slow or it seems like God is too late in acting. Am I the only one that feels that or is there someone else that feels that here? You know, like when we're the ones that are in pain or struggling, it feels like God is just taking his sweet old time. We want him to hurry up. But that's not the end of the story. Because as we continue reading, when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Have faith. She will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except for Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. And so they go into this room, and there are people in there grieving. Um, because Jairus was a highly respected member of, of his town, there was probably a lot of people in there making a, a lot of noise and showing their respects to Jairus and his family. The house was filled with people, as it says, weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. And Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, My child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Two very different people, right? This woman and Jairus, very different people. But in both instances, because of their faith, Jesus heals. 
He heals the bleeding woman. He heals the, the dead daughter. And this is an incredible story as it is. But I don't want you to miss something that's really important in this story, which is our topic for today, which is that pace that Jesus moves at. And you might be thinking, okay, well, what does this story have to do with slowing our lives down? <laughs> like, it seems like a bit of a stretch to connect the two. Um, and to answer that, we need to kind of just start by looking at a key attribute of God's character. And it's one that you've probably heard before. And if you can fully understand, you're probably more intelligent than me. But this attribute is eternity. God is eternal. All right? He has existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future. But he also exists in the eternal now. That was a phrase I was told at college, and I just wrote it down and was like, what? But God is eternal, right? And so he doesn't see time like we do. He doesn't see time as a fleeting commodity or a limited resource that he has to rush around in. I don't know about you, but I, I struggle to see any, any points in Scripture where, where God is in a rush, where God is racing around to complete his tasks for the day. God doesn't view time as something that's restricting. No, the way Jesus lives out his life, the, the way he, we see him walking when he was on this earth, is he creates margin. He creates space in his life. He doesn't stack appointments back to back. He creates room for these kind of moments like we see with the bleeding woman. He creates moments of margin. And I want to tell you a little story about, um, about a man who I met a few years back while I was at college. Um, I want you to picture, just for a moment, that it's uh, a few hours in the future. You've just had your Saturday Arvo lunch. You're, you're feeling a, a big nap coming on. And uh, that, this is kind of the space I was in at the time. And I'd been invited to go and hang out with some mates at the beach, but I was kind of feeling a bit flat at the time. I, was, I just wasn't really feeling it. So I said, you know, what, I'm just going to, I didn't say to myself, I'm going to create some margin. No, I, I just kind of went out and I decided I was going to go be by myself, spend some time with God. And one way that I really connect to God is through playing music and singing. So I went to a place called Shingle Splitters, which if you've been to college, you probably know what Shingle Splitters is. It's a, kind of a weird name, but what it is, it's a little um, kind of, what would you call it? A miniature peninsula that goes out into Lake Macquarie. And you have like water all around you. It's a beautiful spot. And I was out there at about 3 p.m. And I had my guitar there. And I was just playing and singing songs, feeling like I was in a music video, you know, trying to connect with God. And um, all of a sudden, this, this guy, who I kind of see in a distance, just starts hobbling over towards me. And um, he's kind of hunched over a bit. He looks like kind of mid-50s. He's about five foot nothing. And he's carrying a six-pack of beers. And, and he walks over. And then he sits down next to me as I'm playing my guitar. And he says, oh, do you mind if I listen I'm like, sure. So I started playing. I was, I'll, I'll be honest, at the, at, at the time I was like, oh, I, just, I don't want to sing Christian songs right now. I just want to play some chords. And he says, no, you were singing before. Start singing again. I was like, oh, okay. So I can't remember the song I was playing. It's probably What a Beautiful Name or something. I just started singing it and I finished the song and he says, that was beautiful. He said, what, what's the song about? And I said, oh, it's, well, it's, a, it's a worship song about God. I was singing about God. He says, oh, so you're a Christian. I said, yeah, I am. And he, and he said to me, he said, oh, well, tell, tell me this. Um, you know, do, do you think God could ever love me? I said, yeah, for, for sure God can love you. Why do you say that? And he said, oh, well, um, I, kind of, I lost my family. I lost my wife to, um, to alcohol abuse. And 
Um, I'm just in a really bad spot in my life. And we kind of talked for a little bit longer. And um, as, as I was sharing with him, he, I just sensed that he was like, he was just in need of just love. <laughs> like this, this guy who was just desperate for, for, for something greater than his, where he was currently at. And um, I, I ended up being able to share the, the gospel with him, the, the good news that, that Jesus has actually paid the price for him, that he loves him, that he's got a future for him and a purpose for him. And he says, well, I think I, I want that. How do I get that? And I had the privilege of like sharing a prayer with him, a salvation prayer. And as if to kind of symbolize what had happened in, in his heart, he literally grabbed the beer he was drinking and poured it out. And he said, I don't need this anymore. And one by one, he was opening up the rest of the bottles and pouring them out next to me. And I just had like hair sticking up on my neck because I was like, I shouldn't even have been here. Like I was supposed to be at the beach with my mates. But it was in that, that moment of just separation from other people, that space in my day, where this interruption came and it ended up being a divine appointment. As we look at the life of Jesus, what we see time and time again is, is that a lot of his greatest miracles, a lot of his most famous moments, his highlight reel, a vast majority of them were interruptions. They weren't scheduled appointments. They were those interruptions, that space between where he was going or what he was planning. And I think to, to that experience with, with that man, Brett, and, and I, I think to the impact that I was able to have you know, by the, to the glory of God on, on his life. And from that moment, I was able to get his number. We did Bible studies for a little while. He's now connected with the church. You know, he's, he's not perfect by any stretch. He still struggles with alcohol and hasn't fully repaired the ties with his family yet. But he's on the journey, right? And that, that moment never would have happened if I hadn't have made myself available, if I hadn't have been willing to just step into that, that margin, that space of, of openness. But I look at my own life now, and maybe it's a, a result of COVID or, or whatever, but, but during COVID, because I was working from home, I was able to do meeting after meeting, after Bible study, after catch up, after, you know, like just back to back to back, because I was just sitting at my desk, right? So I would just stack my days with stuff, with, with heaps, of, heaps of things and it didn't stay the same as kind of we, we came out of lockdown, but to, to a large extent, my day is still event after event after event. It's, it's still, you know, visit after Bible study, after sermon. Like it's, it's, it's packed, right? My days are packed. I don't know about you, but I, I'm guessing your days sometimes look the same, right? That, you, that your days are often full of a, of a lot of things. And as I reflect on this, I wonder, well, what would it look like if I were to try and like calibrate my lifestyle with the way Jesus lived out his life. And Jesus actually speaks directly into this space in that passage that I, I mentioned earlier from Matthew 11. And in the message paraphrase, we actually read it. He's talking about his lifestyle and the life that he wants for his followers. And I, and I love this paraphrase from Matthew 11, 28 to 30. It says, Jesus is talking to his followers. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm going to say that again because I love it so much. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That gets me excited. That's a life I want to live. 
I don't think it means life is going to be easy, but I think it's going to be a life free of the, the burdens of, of, of stress, of busyness, of, of over, <laughs> overbooking my days. Learn to live freely and lightly. I believe it's the life that Jesus wants for you. And I think we can do it by building margin into our days, by slowing down our lives a bit. I'm not talking about doing less. I'm talking about making room for what truly matters. And it's something that I call the pace of grace. And I heard this phrase a while back, and it's something that I try and pray regularly uh, in, in my own journey now, is God, like, help me to stay in the pace that you've set for my life. I don't want to like rush on ahead with a cool idea and then, you know, get off track because I'm not following your leading. I also don't want to be just lagging behind and just chilling out. I want to be doing what you're calling me to do. And this phrase, it came from a message on a similar topic, but he was, this, this, this pastor who, who I first heard say it, he was talking about, you know, that, that way that the girl was 12 years old and the woman had been bleeding for 12 years. I, th- I think there's, something hinting to us there that there's a timeliness to the way that Jesus worked. That the pace he was going at meant that he was able to heal a child who had died and and a woman who had been suffering from bleeding in the same day. And I want to invite you today to get into the pace of grace as well. That, That as God leads you personally, that daily we would seek his guiding, his leadings, his, his guidance and his leading. There we go. Stuffing my words around a bit there. But I want to invite you into that space of daily asking God for his leading and trying each day as he leads you to, to remain in step with that. Because while God has worked in the past, and I believe he will work in the future, God works now. Like God works in the moment. So if we're too preoccupied with what we have done or what's coming next, we have a tendency to miss what he's doing right now. And I don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss out on what God's doing right now because I'm concerned about what's coming next or I'm worried or frustrated about something that's just happened. And so how do we make this happen? How do we actually go from a space of where we currently are to where we want to be? And I've got a few ideas here. The first one, It's no surprise. It's to create margin in your day. Maybe that means arriving at an appointment 10 minutes early. Maybe it means not stacking appointments back to back, but maybe building half an hour, an hour's gap in there. Create margin in your day. The second one is practice for slowing. And these are like practices or just ideas. And these are things that can actually, um, it's not about doing them perfectly. It's about doing them because by doing them, you're actually achieving what you're trying to make a bigger reality in your life. So practice for slowing. What does that mean? Well, maybe um, you try following the speed limit. It's probably just called like following the law, but like, I know for me, I get a little bit exhilarated by going like a K or two over constantly. Maybe make a game out of it in the week ahead to try and just stay like below the speed limit when you're driving between appointments. Actually, I've tried this a couple of weeks ago and I found I just had so much less stress and so much less worry when I was driving the speed limit. And it's crazy to say, like it's, it sounds like so small and so simple, but there was just a piece that came with that because I wasn't trying to rush between events. I was just, I was just going at a, at a nice, easy pace. Another thing you can try, which I also tried was um, 
pick the longest line in the supermarket? Yeah, it sounds funny, right? Like, why would I pick the longest line if there's a, you know, someone standing there with only one person? I'm obviously going to go there. I want to go behind, you know, the, the mum with her two kids that are going off their nut and, you know, three trolleys worth of stuff. I don't want to stand behind that. But, but what, if, what if God wanted you to stand behind that mum and what if she actually couldn't fully pay for all her food and God wanted you to, to just bless her and just pay for a bit of it? Or what if there was like an elderly person in front of you in line and they just needed someone to talk to for, for a minute or two? What if someone just needed a smile, right? When we create that margin, when we practice for slowing down, we actually are able to see the world around us in a different way because we're not just focused on what's next. We're aware of what's going on around us. The next one, which is an interesting challenge, is to parent your phone. The more I think about it, the more convinced I become that there's not a whole lot of difference between like an iPhone and a toddler. Hear me out. So phones, you have to charge them up. You have to put them to sleep at some point so that they can wake up the next day and and serve you well. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) They're constantly crying out for your attention though, right? Like, like the way that applications and the way that operating systems are designed is to get you to be on them for as long as possible. It's almost like a toddler being like, hey, mom, look at this. Hey, dad, look at this. Look at me. Look at me. Look how good. It, you know. It's constantly crying out for your attention. And the third and this is probably the, the biggest reason why I think um, there's not a lot of difference between toddlers and, I, and iPhones. It's that when you lose it, you freak out. <laughs> I mean, you don't do the pocket dance when you lose a toddler, but if you lose your phone, you freak out. And if you lose a toddler, you freak out. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek. But what I'm saying is, is we need to actually try and like parent our technology that, that we live with. Because if we don't, like who knows that as we, as we go through our days, as we scroll through Facebook or as we check out Instagram or whatever, whatever technology we're using, that our time can fly. I don't know how many appointments I've been late to by a couple of minutes because I sat on my phone a few minutes too long. A lot of neurologists also say that it's really important to have like a buffer zone either, time, either side of when you're sleeping because um, those are some of the most uh, important periods of time for your brain to actually create new brain cells. And so, and so maybe like put your phone to bed an hour before you go to sleep and then maybe wake it up an hour after you get up because when, when, my, when my brain is kind of resetting or recalibrating for the day, on a neurological level. I want to be filling that time and space with meaningful things. Not with videos of like Russian cats dancing to German pop music or something. You know, like, why would I be filling like some important periods of my day with those things, right? I want to be filling them with meaningful things. With time with family, with prayer. With spending time in the Word with God. And the final one I have is take a digital Sabbath. And this isn't one that I've tried, but it's one that I was um, recommended by a friend for and um, he's actually done this right he, he was struggling with a bit of just stress and anxiety he worked on screens all day every day and it came to Saturdays and he still had his phone out and what, what it meant is like the, kind of the stress or the, the anxieties from work would be like just projected on him onto the day when he really wanted to be resting and so what he started to do was he would just turn his phone off on a Friday night and he wouldn't see it again until Saturday Saturday night so he'd literally take a digital Sabbath. He wouldn't use any technology. And he said the peace, Lucky, the, 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 the amount of stress that was released, the amount of just rushness, all the hurry that was let go of because I didn't have technology was just, it was crazy. And if you want to take it to the next level, there's this thing called the one 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 principle where you, every single day, you have an hour free of technology. Every week, you have a day free of technology. And every year, you have a week free 
free of technology. I want to try the weak one at some point because I reckon that'd just be insane. I'd probably get real bored, but like, I, I think, you know, I, I definitely see symptoms in myself of what he was talking about. I want to create margin. I want to create room in my life. And so as I, as I wrap up today, I just want you to, to reflect on these things. See, see if there's anything that God wants you to kind of apply from that. Just reflect on the pace that you're living your own life at. You know, am I living it at a pace that is actually making room for God to work? Am I journeying at a pace where I'm aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing in each moment? Because I know I want more of that for my life. And I hope you do as well. So as I pray, I invite you just to bow your heads with me. We're just going to ask God to remind us of this challenge to live lives of unhurriedness. Right? To, to live lives where we're not rushing between things, but where we can go at a pace where we are following what God is doing and we're aware of what He's doing in each moment. So would you pray with me now as I close? Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us. Lord, the grace where we actually have the option to slow down our lives. Many people don't, and we don't take that for granted. Father, I, I just pray over the week ahead that you might remind us to create margin, to make room in our lives for those divine appointments, for what truly matters. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, we might see more and more people just come to know you because we've made ourselves available to be used by you, Lord. Father, we, we don't want to live lives where we mistake busyness for effectiveness in what you've called us to do. And I just pray over this church, particularly going into what is the busy season, the crazy season, Lord. I ask that you might fill us with, with a spirit of, of rest, a spirit of contentment, one where we're not rushing or feel, feel like we're rushed. But God, one where we can just follow you step by step day by day. And Lord, I ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.